I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and welcome to Paranormal Almanac. That's right, I am your host, Kurt Sandig, and on this edition of Paranormal Almanac, we'll be talking about an odd one, the Kecksburg Incident. The Kecksburg Incident is something that to this day has a lot of theories, but no explanations about what, if anything, actually landed in the woods of a small Pennsylvania town on December 9th, 1965. Now, I'm going to go into a lot of details about a couple of the best theories, and in my opinion, There is really only one that seems to fit the best, although depending on what research you look at, the best theory can go off the rails. And I mean seriously go off the rails. So let's get into the weeds on the Kecksburg incident, or should I say let's get into the woods on the Kecksburg incident. While this one is not quite as well known as Roswell, and to be honest, I'm not sure why, As you're going to hear, it has all or most of the same details and witnesses as a Roswell story, but the Kecksburg UFO incident still hasn't gotten quite as many followers or investigators. Now, yes, sure, it's been called the Roswell of Pennsylvania, and if you're really, really deep into UFOs, you're going to be going, of course I know about the Kecksburg incident, but you'll be just as surprised as I am, because when I have talked to a lot of my friends, they have never heard this story. So I'm hoping that even if you have heard this story, there's going to be some new information. And if you've never heard this story, you're going to find this one really interesting. So let's get into it. The Kecksburg UFO incident occurred on December 9th, 1965 at Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. That's in the United States. A huge fireball was seen by thousands in at least six U.S. states as well as Ontario, Canada. In fact, it streaked right over the Detroit, Michigan, Windsor, Canada area. Reportedly, whatever it was, it dropped hot metal debris over Michigan and northern Ohio. It actually started some grass fires that night and caused sonic booms heard by many in Pittsburgh. So whatever it was, it was big, it was fast, and it was dropping hot metal as it came down. Now, I don't know about you, but... I don't want to get too far ahead, but this doesn't sound like a meteorite to me. It was reported by the press initially to be a UFO, but almost immediately retracted and said to be a meteorite. Again, that doesn't have the definition of a meteorite to me. And authorities also discounted other proposed explanations, such as a plane crash, errant missile test, or re-entering satellite debris. However, Eyewitnesses in the small village of Kecksburg, about 30 miles southeast of Pittsburgh, claimed that something slowed down on descent, changed altitude and direction like it was descending before it crashed into the woods. A boy right there in the area said he saw the object land. His mother saw a wisp of blue smoke arising from the woods and alerted authorities. Another another reported feeling a vibration and a thump about the time the object landed. When they went to investigate, they saw something they didn't expect at all. It was a silver, metallic craft, shaped like an acorn, 
and about as large as a Volkswagen Beetle. And as if that wasn't odd enough, and as if that wasn't odd enough, eyewitnesses also saw Egyptian hieroglyphs around the base of the object. Almost as soon as it landed or crashed, depending on the eyewitness, the military moved in fast and moved in numbers. Most notably, the United States Army, who secured the area, ordered civilians out of the area immediately, and the area was cordoned off and the public were told to not even try to get near the object. Witnesses saw the military take the acorn object away on a flatbed truck that same night. It was said that the object was taken to Edwards Air Force Base, which, if you've been listening to past episodes, you'll know that is exactly where they take UFO crashes. Just after they left, the military claimed they searched the woods and found, you guessed it, absolutely nothing. And it's the gall of the military to say something like that. Eyewitnesses were there before the military showed up. They saw the object. People in town saw the giant flatbed truck with a tarp over an acorn-like object, a giant VW Beetle-sized acorn-like object on the back of a truck. Yet they still had the gall to go to the press and say, we found absolutely nothing. The Tribune Review from nearby Greensburg, which had a reporter at the scene, ran an article the next morning saying, Unidentified flying object falls near Kecksburg, Army ropes off area. The article continued, The area where the object landed was immediately sealed off on the order of the U.S. Army and state police officials. Reportedly, in anticipation of a close inspection of whatever may have fallen, state police officials there ordered the area roped off to await the expected arrival of both U.S. Army engineers and possibly civilian scientists. That's quite the story with a lot of information from the officials for something that was absolutely nothing. And, sadly, a later edition of the newspaper stated that nothing had been found after authorities searched the area. Again, just like Roswell, this has all the same makings of a Roswell UFO crash. One of the town's residents, John Murphy, who is a news reporter and radio host for WHJB, said that he was on the scene the night of the crash and managed to speak to several witnesses. He also managed to get several photographs of the downed object in the woods before it became off-limits by the military. Despite the military immediately confiscating his rolls of film, Murphy managed to keep one concealed. His manager, Michael Mazza, or Mazza, sorry, would later state that he saw Murphy's picture. Although they were quite dark and quite grainy, there was a definite cone-shaped object embedded into the ground. That doesn't sound like absolutely nothing to me. Now, Murphy prepared a radio show titled Objects in the Woods, which he had planned to air. However, before the show went on, two government officials arrived to speak with him. His colleague, Linda Fascia, would later recall them wearing dark suits and insisted on speaking with Murphy alone. When they left, they took with them most of his research notes, the photographs, and audio recordings. His show did air, but it was now a much-edited and very condensed version of the show. So this story also has a Men in Black type situation going on as well. As if that isn't bad enough, Murphy would die several years later in February of 1969 while on holiday with his family in California. He appeared to be the target of a hit-and-run collision. And they never found the man behind the wheel of the car that killed him. So let's pause the story right here for a second. What do you guys think? Obviously, something fell in these woods. 
And this guy Murphy didn't turn over everything to the government when it was found that he was about to talk about it. They came and saw him, took all the evidence, and it seems like they told him, you're not to say a word about this. So let's talk about a couple of the things that the Kecksburg UFO might have been. Oh, before I get to that, the official explanation of the widely seen fireball was that it was a mid-sized meteor, and that stuck for years. Okay, with that being said, let's talk about a couple of things the Kecksburg UFO might have been. The first up is the weakest argument, and I don't believe it for a second, but here it is anyway. It's been said that the object that they saw in Kecksburg may have been debris from Cosmos 96, and that's Cosmos with a K, which is a Soviet satellite. Cosmos 96 had a bell or acorn-like shape, so it's very similar to the object that eyewitnesses saw, though it is incredibly smaller than a VW Beetle. However, in a 1991 report, U.S. Space Command concluded that Cosmos 96 crashed in Canada at 3.18 a.m. on December 9, 1965, so the same day, but it was about 13 hours before the fireball thought to be the Kecksburg object was recorded. So, yeah, Cosmos 96 kind of fits the description. It's way smaller, and it did crash on the same day, which is a really bizarre coincidence, but it also crashed up in Canada and about 13 hours before the Kecksburg incident. In addition, in a 2003 interview, chief scientist for orbital debris at the NASA Johnson Space Center stated, I can tell you categorically there is no way that any debris from Cosmos 96 would have landed in Pennsylvania anywhere around 4.45 p.m. That's an absolute. Orbital mechanics are very strict. So there you have it. That's science. That's someone from NASA saying there is no way that this is what happened. Even though we were given that little nugget of information from our government saying, oh, we knew it landed, it was this, and was it, we wanted to keep it a secret. There is no way that what crashed up in Canada was the same thing that crashed down in Pennsylvania. Then, in 2005, NASA got involved just before the 40th anniversary of the Kecksburg incident and released a statement to the effect that they had examined metallic fragments from the object, and now they're claiming it was from a re-entering Russian satellite, not the Cosmos 96. The spokesman further claimed that the related records had been misplaced, and to be honest, it seemed like a half-assed investigation anyway. It was meant to appease the public. Here's your little kernel of information. This was just the government trying to cover up like the government does. Another theory out there is that it was a U.S. spy satellite meant to track the Russians' movements. Obviously, the U.S. government wouldn't want any news leaked that our spy satellite crashed. So could it have been that? Sure, I suppose. But up next is the best theory in my opinion. And it goes way further back than 1965. In fact, it goes all the way back to World War II and a Nazi rocket scientist named Hans Kammler. Now, Hans Kammler was put in charge of the V-2 missiles and the jet programs for the Nazis. He designed, and some say built, Die Glock, which is German for the bell. Die Glock was a top-secret Nazi scientific technological device or secret weapon. Allegedly, a UFO crashed in Germany's Black Forest in 1936. The downed UFO worked enough that the Nazis reverse-engineered a working UFO. With this knowledge, Kammler built the Nazi Bell. 
And the Nazi bell, again, is an experiment which was carried out by the Third Reich scientists. It's described as being a device made out of a very hard, heavy metal, approximately 9 feet wide, 12 to 15 feet high, and having a shape similar to that of a large bell or an acorn. The other odd similarity is that the Nazi bell was said to have alien hieroglyphics around the base. So that matches the shape and just about the size of the Kecksburg bell, especially if the Kecksburg bell was buried or embedded into the ground. It would be about 12 to 15 feet high. If it was buried a little bit, that brings it down to the size of a VW Beetle. And again, that was just one witness's estimation that it was the size of a VW Beetle. It was probably a little bit bigger than that. So it seems to match all the dimensions. According to an interview of a man named Witkowski, who wrote a book about Nazi UFOs, this device contained two counter-rotating cylinders which would be filled with a mercury-like substance, violet in color. This metallic liquid was codenamed Zerum 525 and was stored in a tall, thin thermos flask at a meter high encased in lead. Now, it's described that the Glock, or the bell, when activated as having an effect zone extending out to about 660 feet. Within that zone, crystals would form in animal tissue, blood would gel and separate, while plants would decompose into a grease-like substance almost immediately. Wachowski also said that five of the seven original scientists working on the project died in the course of the tests. In fact, that the bell was so powerful, they would strap the bell by chains to the ground, and when activated, it would hover and pull against the chains. Inside, a mirror-like material lined the interior of the bell. When active, this quote-unquote mirror would show visions of the past or the future. So, even more fascinating than it being a downed UFO craft, it seemed to have the ability to bend time and space. Essentially, it was a Nazi time machine. Witkowski claimed that he'd read and translated transcripts from Nazi SS officer Jacob Sporenberg. Witkowski claimed that he had access to these files through unnamed sources from the Polish intelligent community. And while he was allowed to see them and translate them, he was not allowed to make any copies of them. So yeah, take this one with a huge grain of salt, but it does seem like the German bell existed. There's diagrams, there are drawings about it, and there's a lot of files that speak about this top secret project. So I'm sure you're asking the same question I asked at this point. What the hell happened to the bell, and what happened to Kamler after World War II? Well, as far as Kamler's concerned, he disappeared. It's now been almost proven that his death was faked, and no one ever found the Nazi bell either. So he disappears, and so does the bell. If the bell existed, it disappeared. We know Kamler existed. He disappeared. So here's where it gets a lot weirder. There are theories that Kamler was taken into custody by the U.S. government and his work was seized. And this is very common. After World War II, governments from around the world rounded up Nazi scientists and put them to work for them. In fact, the U.S. jump in the space race was because of these same kind of Nazi scientists. It was part of Operation Paperclip. And that's known. It's a fact that governments from around the world 
sought after and took these men into custody to build rockets for themselves. And it's very true that the Apollo rockets and the Mercury rockets that brought the U.S. astronauts into space, that technology was based off of Nazi scientists' research into rocketry. So it's not far-fetched to say that the U.S. government now had the Bell in their possession and Kamler into their possession. And who knows, 20 years later, this is what could have crashed in the Pennsylvania woods. Maybe they'd been experimenting with the Bell this entire time. They got the Bell up into the air. It was cruising around. It's got anti-grav. Maybe it has UFO technology. It probably does based on the hieroglyphics. And something happened to the Bell and it crashed. Sure, that is a possibility. The other part of this theory, the wacky part of this theory, is that Kamler, knowing that World War II was coming to an end, he got into the bell and fired it up. The bell not only could fly, but it could fold space and time, and Kamler disappeared in time to return some 20-odd years later, and he crashed the time machine bell into the woods of Pennsylvania. Now I know there's a lot of leaps of faith that have to go in to say that what crashed in 1965 was a Nazi scientist from the 1940s in an alien time machine. That's insane. But, like I said, there's a lot of people out there that have this theory that if the bell was real, and again, it seems like it was, and if the bell was a time machine, and again, there's some stories that claim that it was, why wouldn't you jump into that thing and take off when you know that the Allied forces are about to take down the Nazi army. So again, I know that one is a bizarre one, but if you look at the facts, both the Bell and the Kecksburg UFO match in size and shape. So no matter where or, I guess, when the Bell came from, it does seem to me that what crashed in the Pennsylvania woods that night is the German Bell. Again, whether you want to go down that weird time travel road or if you want to just go, we got Kamler, we got the bell right before the German army fell. We took them all to America, and we were working on this project for 20 years, and it happened to crash. It's a stretch, but it does explain one thing. It explains how the U.S. government would have been able to track it on radar as it was descending, and whether it was the U.S. government flying it or a time-traveling Nazi, the U.S. government would want to seize that as quickly as possible. They would not want the information getting out that that is what crashed in Pennsylvania. So I know this is a bizarre one. And I know depending on how far down the rabbit hole you want to go, it gets even weirder and weirder. But this is yet another instance where we know for a fact that something happened. Witnesses immediately at the site saw a strange object, and the press reported on the strange object. After talking with the military, the press recanted their story and said nothing happened. Years later, mostly through Freedom of Information Acts, our government comes up with a very reasonable-sounding explanation as to what actually happened. And these explanations always seem to involve a classified military project that's easy for every armchair ufologist out there to debunk right away. You'd think that after they got called out for trying to say that Roswell was a weather balloon and dummies, that they could come up with a better cover story, especially since they had... 50 years to come up with what happened in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. So it's that time of this edition. What do you think happened? What crashed that cold night in 1965 in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania? Is it something as simple as a Russian satellite? 
And if it was a Russian satellite, how did it course correct on descent? Crashing satellites don't tend to do that. And why would a Russian satellite have hieroglyphics on its base like so many of the eyewitnesses saw? They all saw these weird, strange symbols. It wasn't Russian lettering. I think some of the people would have said, oh, they had backwards R's and it was Russian lettering. We kind of know what Russian lettering looks like. By that point, it's the 60s. It was 65. So it doesn't seem to be Russian lettering. It seemed to be, for every eyewitness that saw it, hieroglyphics or alien lettering on its base. What's the explanation behind that? That doesn't tie into a U.S. spy satellite, a Russian spy satellite, Cosmos 96. None of those would have had the hieroglyphics, and I think that's the key to this one. So what do you guys think crashed that night? Please let me know. Jump onto Facebook. It's Paranormal Almanac. Let me know what you think there. Or go on to Instagram or go on to Twitter at ParaAlmanac. And uh, feel free to stop by, say hi. While you're at it, jump on over to iTunes. Make sure you click like and subscribe. Leave a nice review. And thank you to everybody for listening. I can't thank you guys enough. I know I say this every week, but it's very true. I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for you. So once again, I am your host, Kurt Sandvig, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. <laughs>